from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 2nd. Today, new police technology with major ethical implications. The future of women in Afghanistan and remembering the Holocaust amid recent synagogue shootings. The old school way for these deputies was they would get surveillance footage from inside a store or somebody would take a smartphone video and they would maybe have a picture of somebody's face, but they wouldn't really have any clue of how to find them. They would pass it around to the other deputies in hopes that somebody would recognize them. But, you know, that was sort of a crapshoot. Drew Harwell is a tech reporter at The Washington Post. Now they have this facial scanning search tool where they can upload the footage into the system and it can crawl through hundreds of thousands of jail mugshots that they've been collecting back almost two decades and in their hopes find a match. Drew spent some time with the Washington County Sheriff's Department in Oregon, just outside of Portland. The investigators there are using this new technology from Amazon called Recognition. We should mention here that Amazon founder and chief executive Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Recognition, spelled with a K where the C should be, is a facial recognition service that is changing the way that police work, at least in this one county. It's sort of similar to the software that's in Facebook and in your iPhone. It looks at your face and crunches it into a big string of code and then allows somebody to search through a big database to see whether they can find a match. But they can upload pretty much whatever photos they want. And these come from, you know, deputy smartphones. These can come from social media like Facebook. These can come from surveillance photos. So anything really on on the public Internet right now is fair game. Have police actually been successful in arresting people because of this technology? Yeah, they say they have. I mean, they ran more than a thousand searches just last year. They said there were dozens of arrests and they were for shoplifting and theft and trespassing and and all sorts of crimes. Can you give a specific example of that? Yeah. So there was this Ace Hardware in Western Oregon. A woman sort of grabbed a $12 bottle of welding gas and stuffed it in her tote bag and walked out. And it was captured on surveillance footage, and the store employees called the police. And this is obviously a low-level shoplifting crime. And usually, you know, the the deputies said they wouldn't really chase this if they didn't recognize the woman in the first place. They would just sort of let it go. But in this case, they were able to run the footage through recognition, out-popped a name from past jail files, and they flagged this woman. And so, you know, for the next couple months, whenever they were scanning for license plates or people's faces, this woman was among the list of searches. And so months later, um, this undercover drug uh, deputy saw the woman's license plate and flagged these officers. And, you know, this huge Dragnet was created and these officers went onto the scene and they were they were tailing her car and they stopped her and they ended up arresting her and charging her with shoplifting. She admitted to taking the gas. She said she had needed it to sort of fix something on her car. And, you know, the deputies saw this as a success story. Here was 
a criminal in their mind that didn't get away this time. And all, all it took on their end was just sort of hitting a couple buttons and, and out popped this magic answer. And the way that it works, using artificial intelligence to take a grainy surveillance photo and match it from, you know, all of these records of mugshots, it sounds like something from, like, CSI or the Bourne Identity or something. Totally. Yeah. I mean, this is something that police have wanted for years. This is like a really powerful tool for them. And when you talk to them, what do they say about it? You know, they're actually really excited. I talked to a number of deputies, and one of them was a guy named Jeff Talbot, and he's one of the deputies who is among the more than 100 who has used this search. And he says, you know, it saves them time. It helps them find the right people. And, you know, it's it's changed the way they do their job. We have many cases that have been solved that otherwise would never have been solved. Um, we also know through our investigations and what we find when we arrest these individuals, oftentimes this is not the first time or the last time they're committing these crimes. They've probably done it before then, and they would continue to do it afterwards if they weren't arrested and held accountable for committing crimes. What are the potential risks of this? So these systems are very imperfect. And the search is really dependent on a couple different issues. One is that the photo has to be really good. And, you know, a lot of times if it's a smartphone photo or even a surveillance camera image that's taken from, you know, the ceiling of a store that maybe gets the side of somebody's face, it's not going to be very high quality. And so you put that in the search and you hope it comes out with the right answer. But it also depends on finding that person in the database. And their database is based off of jail mugshots. So they're only really going to find people who have been arrested before. But the issue with that is that you don't have to be a guilty criminal to have your picture taken at the jail. All it takes is being arrested. And if you're declared innocent, your image is still in that database. And you're still going to be a target for police. Yeah, and you're still going to be a target for police. You're going to be more likely to be a result in this facial recognition search down the road. So, you know, it's imperfect. And that raises all sorts of issues. One is that the, the search gives deputies ideas on where to find these people, but it doesn't really give them anything else. It just sort of pops out an answer. And, you know, there's some worries among public defenders and lawyers around Oregon and across the country that deputies are going to see this result and feel what we call automation bias, which is the feeling that, hey, the machine popped out the right answer. Who am I to contradict it? And they're going to be finding the evidence to prove the machine right and not necessarily finding the evidence to find who it was in the first place. So is this technology available to any police department that wants it? Yeah, pretty much. Really any business. Anybody who has an account with Amazon Web Services, which is one of the most popular cloud systems in the country used by millions, can start using recognition today. And it's really, really cheap. It's Like how cheap? It's like a couple hundred bucks to get started and then a few bucks a month for a police agency of, of this size. It's like a Netflix subscription. And Wait, so it just costs a few hundred dollars to put this, like, game-changing technology in place? Yeah, which is crazy because, you know, a lot of these technologies are really sophisticated and really complicated, and they can take thousands or millions of dollars to get started. So, you know, with it being this inexpensive, the, the worry among some people is that people are going to start using it without really thinking through the implications. 
we met a public defender named Mary Brewington in Oregon who had the worry that, you know, these systems are so cheap that people are not really thinking before turning them online. It kind of tempts experimentation without too much analysis being done first. Because I think if you have to if you have to pay and budget for something, then you're going to think through, you know, is this necessary? Is this really going to achieve what we want it to? Um, are there reasons to choose something else? Are there problems with this? And um, since it's so low cost, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that at least there's the risk that you sort of leap first and then think later about the implications. I think a lot of people could potentially stand to lose from this technology. But I think in particular, there are a lot of risks for black and brown people who, A, are over-policed and more likely to have a mugshot in a police database, even if they've never been convicted of a crime. And B, we know that technology is worse at identifying black and brown faces than it is white faces. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, You think about the inequality in how people of color are policed in this country now as just sort of a foundation. There's an extra element, too, with facial recognition in that research has found that the systems just perform more accurately on people with lighter skin. And part of that is probably because of how the systems were trained. They were fed lots and lots of images of people, and those people tended to be white men. And so the systems learned and were refined on certain faces more than others. And so, you know, there have been proven accuracy disparities that would lead to potentially more false arrests and more misidentifications of people of color. So that's just a whole sort of extra modern problem on top of just this general issue we have in the country of racial disparity in in policing. So, you know, that's a worry too. And, you know, these are situations where, you know, a a police officer could, could... have the wrong impression about somebody, maybe think they're a violent criminal or a fugitive, and take action in that way that could, you know, potentially endanger innocent people's lives. Um, And there are very sort of few policies protecting against that right now. And we're so early in the training and the understanding of these systems, especially for local police officers who have enough to think about already, that, you know, these these are real worries and and people are afraid that, you know, innocent people are going to get hurt. Drew Harwell reports on technology for The Washington Post. It's been close to 20 years since the U.S. military began fighting in Afghanistan. A central objective of that war was taking down the Taliban. At the time, U.S. officials made the case that the Taliban weren't just harboring terrorists, but they were also oppressing women. The West, the United States, went into the war with uh, saving women's rights as being key to it. Laura Bush used to speak about this a lot. The brutal oppression of women is a central goal of the terrorist. Sherry Blair, the wife of the British Prime Minister at the time. The women in Afghanistan still have a spirit in them, which belies their unfair, downtrodden image. Hillary Clinton used to speak about this a lot. The women of Afghanistan like the women anywhere, are critical to their nation's future. It was a massive focus uh, and reason for why Western forces went into Afghanistan. This is foreign correspondent Amy Ferris-Rotman. And she says that over time, that focus changed. 
as the war went on and it became clear to women's rights groups that a lot of it was lip service, that women's rights were not being protected in this war. Instead, it was focusing more on building the military, building the army. And of course, those are wonderful things, but women were one of the reasons that we went into that war and they feel very betrayed. That sense of betrayal feels particularly strong this week, as the U.S. holds peace talks with the Taliban over the future of Afghanistan. One thing that's important to bear in mind is the Afghan government has been completely sidelined. That has incensed Afghan President Ashraf Ghani, and it's also troubling Afghan women. It's particularly poignant and upsetting that women have been excluded from these talks in particular because the Taliban are so notorious for how they treated women when they were in power. They were in power in the late 90s through their fall at the hands of U.S.-backed forces in late 2001. And they imposed a very strict version of their own Sharia law on women. And women were stripped of their most basic rights. Girls could not go to school. Women could not work. Infamously, women had to wear a head-to-toe burqa, which covered them entirely when they were walking out of their homes. And I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find an Afghan woman today who says, yeah, it wasn't that bad. Despite the Taliban's efforts to silence women's voices, one woman has started a movement to make sure that they're heard. I realize as a first lady, I do have some privilege. Rula Ghani is the Afghan first lady. She's married to Ashraf Ghani. She's 70 years old and she is working for women's rights from within the presidential palace in Kabul. We now have worked for 20 years since 2001 on a totally different system of values, which is actually, uh, it might be, people call it democracy and it is a, a foreign name. I prefer to call it mashurati. And shura is a, a value, an Afghan value. There is not one little village in Afghanistan where there is not a shura, where it means a council of either elders or whoever who get together and discuss a thing and through discussion arrive at a solution. The Afghan women have really come together as these talks have got underway to demand that they get represented as well and to demand that their rights be protected in any agreement going forward. And we're yet to really see much action from the United States that goes beyond pledges and promises. Why have they been excluded from this process when so much of how people understand the Taliban and its leadership in the 90s was the ways in which it was really horrible to women? Well, I would love to ask that question to um, to, to the U.S. envoy for peace, Zalmay Khalilzad himself, um, who unfortunately is not speaking to any foreign press at the moment. But um, what I've gathered from speaking to Afghan women activists, from speaking to the first lady herself, and from speaking to women's rights activists who are familiar with Afghanistan, is the fact that women are not being included, the fact that the rights of women are not being pressed, is the culmination of a sort of broken promise, if you will, over, over this war. You've been reporting on how the First Lady of Afghanistan has been getting involved in trying to get women better represented in this peace process. How did she first get involved in that and what is she doing? So Rula Ghani was, as she says, 
sort of trapped inside the presidential palace where she must stay because security has become so unstable in Afghanistan. And she was watching these these peace talks unfold around her between the United States and the Taliban and was incensed by how Afghan women were not being represented. So instead of having these seemingly empty pledges and promises that the UN and the United States would say repeatedly, and it must be said, even the Taliban themselves have said that were they to come back to power, women's rights will be protected. And that, of course, was met with a lot of um, skepticism. Yeah, and incredulity. I mean, people were just like, uh, okay. So Rulagani was watching all of this and she just thought, okay, we're not actually speaking to the women on the ground. And a lot of Afghan women activists were also incensed by the idea that they would just be lumped into one big group of, oh, Afghan women. So yes, the rights of Afghan women must be protected. So what her office did is they organized with several grassroots groups in Afghanistan to actually hold meetings for women in each of Afghanistan's 34 provinces. And she started doing that in the middle, in August of last year and finished in February of this year. And they actually managed to go around to all of the provinces, speak to the women, well, the women, I say the women, but a a representative group between 150 and say 800 women who would come to the provincial governor's place and actually say what they wanted when it came to ending the war. And after doing that, Rulagani's office held a huge meeting, a conference, uh, what she calls a consensus for Afghan women. At 3,500 Afghan women participated in this. It was held in Kabul in late February, and it was a massive event. That many women in one place had never happened before in modern Afghan history. So is this working, the fact that, that Rulagani has been able to bring together all these women and bring together their voices and their demands? Are people starting to pay attention to that? Well, the United States and the Taliban did not respond to this massive meeting, this this conference of 3,500 women, which I find personally shocking, especially from the U.S. side. Of course, the U.S. is walking a very careful line and trying trying their best to negotiate some form of settlement. But still, I think it was quite shocking that they did not comment on this. Has there been any pushback against what she's been doing? So what Rulagani has been doing has been treated somewhat with suspicion. Her husband is up for re-election in September. And of course, his government has been sidelined thus far from talks between the US and the Taliban. So there has been some criticism from Ghani's political opponents who say Rulagani has been helping women only to better the chances of success for her husband's re-election. Those voices, though, have not been very loud. And I would say it's fair to say there hasn't been a massive backlash against what she's doing. What is your sense of what people are afraid of if the Taliban return to power and if women aren't allowed to be part of the process of deciding the terms on which they return to power? So Rulagani, like many other prominent women in Afghanistan and women rights activists, 
is worried that if the Taliban come to power, even if, you know, partially come to power, which is also being discussed, that women will not be able to be represented in government in the way they're being now. Uh, there are several women ministers. There are several women, Afghan women, who are envoys to their country abroad. And there is a deep concern that they would lose that visibility on the government level. But also there's a massive concern that they will lose their rights on a very basic level. We're already seeing in Taliban-held areas of the country that female mortality is going up because there are not the right health services for them because women are being denied opportunities such as being doctors or being able to work as doctors or nurses in these areas. And also, crucially, I think we're seeing that education is being denied to girls once they hit sort of puberty age, sort of 12, 13. It's very clear to Afghan women exactly what will happen to them if the Taliban does come to power. I was speaking to one Afghan activist, Wajma Fro, and she actually said to me, listen, it's going to be even worse this time round because unlike the first time round, we were suffering from war and civil war and we didn't have the rights we have today. Now things will be much easier for the Taliban as they'll know exactly who to target. Amy Ferris-Rotman is the Moscow correspondent for The Post. And now, one more thing from reporter Deanna Paul on Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. It begins Wednesday at sundown, and it continues through Thursday until sundown on Thursday night. In Israel, they have a siren system, and so on Yom HaShoah, the sirens start at one end of the country and slowly make their way to the other, and everyone stops wherever they are, even if you're literally in the middle of the highway where there's a million cars gets out of their car for a moment of silence. This story has personal resonance for me because both of my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. My grandmother, Lucy Rosenzweig, was from Poland. Well, we were very scared. She was taken to a ghetto after the Germans invaded Poland. So they took us all to the camp. We were there maybe a year. And was ultimately in various concentration camps. Finally, we arrived to Auschwitz, the railroads, the waiting, the SS on all the sides. They took us out like cattle. And spent some time in Auschwitz. My grandmother lived with me growing up, so hearing her story was something that was somewhat commonplace. It's something that I grew up accustomed to. But as I got older, she shared more and more about her experiences. And something my grandmother would say is that even though they were in Poland, they they knew the war was happening in Germany, and they knew that Germans had invaded other countries and that they had invaded Poland. And I would always ask her, how did you not know? Why wouldn't you leave? And everybody says that until it happens to you, you don't think it'll happen. But you know, until it doesn't happen, you still believe. It wouldn't happen to us, but it happened. I knew that Holocaust Remembrance Day was coming up, and knew that I wanted to write a story, and had already started to think about the importance of hearing survivors as they're still with us, and the rise in anti-Semitism and in hatred and hate crimes in the country, and why it's important for everyone to hear stories from survivors, not just Jewish people, and how the lessons that they experience could translate to other communities. And all of that was in the back of my mind, and then 
This weekend, there was another shooting in California. During the Sabbath, while people were praying on the last day of Passover, which is also a holiday that celebrates the end of Jewish persecution, there was a manifesto published online under the same name as the individual who was arrested as the shooter. And the rhetoric in that document online was just so disturbing and upsetting. And the individual who wrote it, his idols were... Robert Bowers, who's been accused of the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in October, and Adolf Hitler. I don't think it's a coincidence that we are seeing a rise in hate crimes and a rise in anti-Semitism at the same time as survivors are dying out. Without them around, it becomes easier to think that the stories that we've heard aren't true or aren't real, because what happened to them doesn't seem real. It was so inhumane. And I think that's what worries me the most. And as a grandchild of a survivor, it is frustrating and challenging to think of how it is that we can continue their legacy and their memory and make sure that future generations realize that this was their reality. It's not something that we should ever be able to forget because it could happen again. So I always think, why did I survive? There were better people than me when they got killed. And then the other way, I think, maybe was the purpose that I should have children, that should be a new generation. And to tell the story, we continue to talk about it. Deanna Paul covers national and breaking news for The Post. The audio from Deanna's grandmother, Lucy, is from an interview conducted by the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show by going to our website, postreports.com, and share your thoughts about those stories on Twitter by using the hashtag postreports or tweeting at me. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.